0: Thank you, Brooks. Thank you, brothers and sisters. It's great to be here with you this morning. I was just a few months ago in Egypt. Uh, I remember having the privilege of preaching at a Presbyterian church in Alexandria. And I remember sitting there watching some of the older saints at the church service and considering the lives that they had led for decades as followers of Christ in a largely Muslim country, and realizing the disadvantages they had had and the challenges they had faced, and I couldn't help but thinking to myself, what would I do in their situation? I found myself admiring the faith of men and women that I didn't personally know, but just from their testimony of being at church. In those kind of circumstances. In 1857, from Alberton on northern Prince Edward Island, Canada, came young George Gordon. He studied medicine in London, met and married a young woman, Ellen, and persuaded her to join him in taking the gospel to the island people of the South Pacific. They landed on the island of Aramango, about 1,200 miles northeast of Brisbane, Australia. That was an island that was already well-known for producing some of the first missionary martyrs of the South Pacific. Gordon learned the language, just like Brooks was talking to us about in the last session. He shared his medical skills that he'd gained in London, and he established a good reputation for the new religion he brought as beneficial to the people. Gordon established a school for the people. They'd never had anything like that. While the Gordons were there, they were visited by John Payton, whose autobiography I would encourage you to read that Brooks was just quoting from. Payton was laboring on a nearby island. Gordon gave most of his time to translating the Bible into the language of the people he felt that was the longest lasting service he could render them. Though threatened and repeatedly told to leave the island, Gordon resolved that in order to do great things, a man must live as though he never had to die. After four years of living there in 1861, one day, Gordon was murdered. And a few minutes later, his wife Ellen was murdered. When the news of the martyrdom reached the aged and sightless mother of George back on Prince Edward Island, Canada, she cried out, my son, my son. And she wept. His brother James, a student for the ministry, was plowing when he heard the news. And he immediately sent in an application to the mission board. He asked that he might be sent to take his brother's place on Aramango and preach the message of forgiveness and love to his brother's murderers. Where do you get the kind of confidence and courage you need for long term only by understanding more about God and his purposes and his plans. If you open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, I think that's why Paul wrote this letter. I think that's why he wrote as deeply as he did in chapter 1 about the purposes of God. I think that's why he presents the power of the gospel so radically in chapter 2. It's because these young Christians in Ephesus will have heard that Paul had been imprisoned. He'd been arrested, prevented from continuing his work. And Paul knew that this apparent misfortune and this powerful opposition that was now showing itself could scare these young believers and could discourage them. He knew they might want to be maybe more on the right side of history. And so if the powers that be are gonna come down on this Christian gospel like this, then maybe I better think a little bit more carefully about this meeting I've been going to, about these things I've been saying. Paul wanted to prepare them by teaching them more of God, and of his plans and of his purposes so that they would not, if you look there in chapter 3 verse 13, he says so clearly, so that they would not lose heart. That's his motivation for this. So remember, Paul is writing under this, at least under this kind of house arrest that we see him under at the end of the book of Acts. Perhaps given his reference to chains later in the letter, it had worsened by the point he writes this into a more strict and sinister imprisonment. We think he's writing around 62 AD. So Paul here has been teaching them this great truth. Let me me open up to chapter three. Let's begin reading at verse one of chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the, the same body. He just said that up in 2.15. And partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart. Over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, this last verse in the bit I read there, verse 13, really tells us why Paul is saying what he's saying there. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He knows that their faith could be discouraged. They could be one of those many starters and few finishers. They could fail. They could faint along the way, not keep going as a Christian. Put up on their Instagram accounts pictures of their now disowning of Christ when once they claimed to own him. So Paul wants them to put his tribulation in perspective and not be discouraged by the stories of the trials or the account or imaginations of them or even be ashamed by it, but instead to see the trial that Paul is undergoing for them as a badge of honor. He wants them to see it positively in the same way that they had come to see the cross as a measure of God's love for them. And it's to that end that he reminds them of these great truths that we see here in our passage, particularly here in verses seven to 13 in this long paragraph. Four observations to encourage you not to lose heart, to be able to undertake the long work. Number one, jail can stop Paul, but not his message. Jail can stop Paul, but not his message. Look at verse seven. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul may have been hindered by jail, but his message continued. What Paul presents to them here is his own preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. That's God's grace given to Paul in verse 7, which meant grace to the nations in verse 8. So grace to, the nation in, uh, grace to Paul in verse 7 meant grace to the nations in verse 8. As Paul had said in the first verse, he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And that was fleshed out particularly in the fact that Paul was called to be a servant, a steward of this great message. God called Paul especially to serve the Gentiles, how? By preaching the gospel to them. God had prepared Paul. Paul had been studying to be a missionary without realizing that Paul had been studying to be a missionary. Paul had been studying to be a Christian missionary without realizing that he had been studying to be a Christian missionary. Paul had learned much that God would use and he would relearn it all through Christ. Paul mentioned above in verse two, the stewardship of God's grace, which had been given to him for the sake of the Gentiles. Now here in these verses, he tells them more specifically what that was. Whose calling from God does not include some suffering. Note how prominent the theme of grace is. Paul worked hard before he was converted. Paul worked hard after he was converted. He was a hard worker. But notice the theme that's dominant here is God's grace. Paul didn't earn this special status. It was a gift. This special status was a calling to serve in the specific gift of grace that God gave Paul was to make plain, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now again, Paul was prepared. Paul had to be one of the the best prepared folks in biblical theology that we've ever had preaching the Christian gospel. He knew the word well and God caused him to re-understand the word through some very personal tutelage and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a way that continues to bless us today. We know the well-known account of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine. Paul was going to bind the Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, but instead God captured Paul and bound him and brought him to his purposes. God commissioned Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, even to the point that this one-time persecutor of the believers in Christ would be willing to become the persecuted to get the gospel to the nations. That's the grace that Paul is talking about here. So then and there... God called Paul the Pharisee to preach this new news, this very good new news to everyone, not just to the Jews, but to all of the non-Jews, the nations, the Gentiles. Paul was made a herald of this royal proclamation about how the Gentiles could share in the church and its privileges of inheritance and family and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, bold access to God himself, all of this, Paul was commissioned to tell. God called Paul to proclaim this to the nations. That's why so many of us are sitting here. Because God called Paul to do that. And that's why it matters that the nations come in. If the Lord tarries, there are yet more generations to be gathered in. How many times do you hear the Great Commission presented only two-dimensionally? All peoples everywhere. That's good. That's not bad. By itself, that's not nearly enough. It's always to the very end of the age. There's this third dimension of depth and endurance over time. That's why Jesus set up the church. More on that later. God called Paul to do this. You remember the way the Old Testament rings with promises that God was going to do this. The, The very... Call that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 12. In you all families of earth shall be blessed. Or Isaiah's prophecy about how all the nations would flow to the mountain of the house of the Lord or about the day coming when Egypt would be called my people and Assyria the work of my hands. Or Daniel's vision in which the ancient of days would be served by all people, nations, and languages. Getting a hold of Paul was God's way of making the unsearchable riches, the inexhaustible riches of his grace in Christ known to the nations. It's how all these prophecies would be fulfilled. Beloved, this idea of the riches of Christ being unsearchable just fits so beautifully with how the Bible always speaks of God in, In Job, God's actions are said to be unsearchable and his years. David says in Psalm 145 that God's greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah, that God's understanding is unsearchable. Paul himself over in Romans 11 says that his judgments and his understanding is unsearchable. Now, does that mean we shouldn't search? No, it means we'll never stop finding. It means that Christ's riches are so many and so deep that they can't be fully cataloged or exhausted. They'll never all be found out. They never end. The unsearchable riches of Christ is what Paul was given to proclaim. My Christian friend, God desires you to know the unsearchable riches of Christ he has for us. Forgiveness, reconciliation with God, a new life power over sin, the hope of eternity with him forever. All of this, God has planned for you, Christian. That's what Paul said to the Colossians, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, forgiveness, adoption, eternal life, resurrection. I'm not sure why on a Wednesday morning, a person who is not a Christian would be sitting in a room like this at a missions conference. But in case you are here, In case you've come with a friend, you were bored, it's your cousin, you owed it to them, they've been trying to evangelize you for decades, they thought surely at a missions conference somebody will preach the gospel. Friend, if that's you, I just want you to know you're very welcome here, we're glad you're here, we're not doing anything secret. We wanna tell this to everybody, you can be forgiven for all of your sins. The God who made you has shown his love in sending his only son to live a life of perfect trust and obedience. He offered up his life as a sacrifice on the cross, a sacrifice that all of us really have had required of us because of our sins, but whom God's son has taken for all of us. He's taken our penalty for all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. If you wanna know more about what that means for you or could mean for you, talk to the friend you've come with. Uh, Talk to someone that you hear speaking up here or someone at one of the tables outside. That would be the most important thing that could happen for you at this conference. Friends, Paul had great humility, serving those who knew less than him, in part because he had so much more of God's love and Christ's grace revealed to him. Why do you think Paul calls himself here the very least of all the saints? Why why would he say that? Somebody? Somebody? Put up a hand. Give me an answer. A lot of mysteries here. you got to know your Bible. Come on. Why would Paul say that? Put up a hand, somebody. No, you got to put up your hand. <laughs> Name. Nathan. Nathan, why? He persecuted the church. He persecuted the church. He, first means 15. he says that. At least of all the apostles, because he persecuted the church. And I think that makes sense. I don't think Paul was generally humble. Maybe true. But I think Paul had a particularly pointed sense that he had done something unutterably evil. And I think it hung on him. If any of you have ever read Great Expectations by Dickens, the main story Pip, or the main character in the story Pip, has this uh, benefactor throughout the story and he assumes it's this one character, but he finds out it's really this other person, Abel Magwitch, who's a, a convict sent to Australia. And when Pip sees that, It completely recalibrates how he understands everybody. Friends, that's just a drop in the bucket compared to what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. When he was going to persecute the Christians and all of a sudden, because of the new eyes, the new life, the new heart, the new mind God gives him, he understands this group, these people I've been persecuting are not the enemies of God. They, in fact, are the apple of God's eye. I have been trying to harm the church That God has given his son for. Friends, Paul loved the church. Now, we're not apostles. Each Christian here, though, has been given the gift of faith in Christ. We've had the gospel shared with us. We surely want everyone to come to know God in Christ. That's why we're concerned about evangelism, that's why we're concerned about missions, that's why we're at this conference. Friends, for people like us, we we need to read these verses and we need to understand that yes, jail can stop Paul, but not his message. The message goes on. This stewardship God gave Paul for the Gentiles continues on. A second observation to encourage you from verse nine, jail can change Paul's plans, but not God's plans. Jail can change Paul's plans, but not God's plan. Look at verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God's plan is to bring to light for everyone his mystery. But what is God's mystery? That there is salvation for every kind of person, Jew and Gentile, through faith in Christ. That's what Paul is saying in verse 9. I love this verse. You see that the bigness at the beginning and end of the verse... At the beginning, God's plan, God's plan is for everyone. And At the end of the verse, the one who had always known this was the creator of all. So the plan for all was in the mind of the one who'd made all. But then the the, the sort of a tension in the verse is right there in the middle where the breadth of God's loving concern that he has, you see, for a while is is hidden. That's the surprising part. We have to understand this verse We have to understand the breadth of his concern in our churches. That's why we want to give attention. That's why we want to pray. That's why we want to make the efforts we do and give the money we do to making sure people around the world hear the gospel. That's why in our congregation a couple of nights ago, we interviewed a pastor from from Beirut in Lebanon. We heard something about what we did last week with representatives of other churches to try to cooperate together to get the gospel out. That's why the work of Nine Marks is such a, a joy for me. As we get to talk to friends in India and China and Peru and Singapore and Kenya and so many other places around the world about establishing healthy churches. Uh, Interns from our own church's internship program are just from uh, last month are now headed back to Canada and the United Kingdom and China and elsewhere. Pray that God change our State Department's mind so that we can have an intern from Belgium coming in August. We really want Benjamin and the State Department won't give him to us right now. So would you just join me in praying that we will be able to get Benjamin in August? Thank you. Back to the sermon. It's, what's surprising about verse nine though, is that I think at the very center of this verse, it's that this plan to be known and believed by all was at one point hidden. It was a mystery. It was previously unknown to man. And this is the limitation and this is the tension. God's plan to all, for all, was previously unknown. But now the effect of Paul's preaching to the Gentiles was to bring to light for everyone, to to bring to the light, not merely in the sense of inform, but enlighten and convert. Uh, The fog lifts, the, the darkness scatters. Remember when Paul was standing before King Agrippa and recounting what had happened to him on the Damascus Road, he recounted, how God had called them to open their eyes. That's the way Paul saw his ministry. He would write to the Thessalonian Christians, you are not in darkness, brothers. So this is to bring to light for everyone in, in this sense, to make all see, to make it plain to people from all over the world, for them to, to see, to become enlightened about the economy, the, the dispensation, the administration of God's mercy for them through Christ. This was God's plan to make known his plan of the mystery hidden for ages. So Paul's chains could well change Paul's plans. Plans to go to Spain or maybe return to Ephesus. His plans to go to Corinth. But Roman chains could not change God's plans. You see, if George Gordon is killed, Maybe God will have a James Gordon behind him. Your trials and mine may sometimes direct our steps to the urgent care when we weren't planning on spending the afternoon that way. Or send us to a different apartment. Or end a relationship. But friends, they will never derail God's plan. These Ephesian Christians needed to hear and understand this so that their faith would not quake and quail and fail under the fear of Paul's imprisonment and what it meant and what it might mean for them. They needed to know that jail could change Paul's plans, but not God's. That should encourage them. And they should be encouraged by a third observation. Number three jail can thwart Paul's purposes, but not God's. Again, look at verse 10. So that the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So here we see that God's purpose is to display his manifold wisdom through the church. So this gospel preaching of verses 7 to 9 results in what? The church of Jewish and Gentile believers. As he said in 2.15, one new man in place of the two. And this displays to the spiritual rulers the manifold wisdom of God. Paul's purpose in that sense, insofar as it was God's purpose, couldn't be thwarted. If Paul had other smaller purposes, they could be thwarted. But God's larger purpose would not be thwarted. God's intention in the gospel was to display his wisdom to the heavenly realms. Some wisdom is about smaller and more immediate matters. So for example, if if you lack wisdom about some situation in your workplace, or at school, or in your family, uh, we read in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But the wisdom God referred to here is something much more than that. Paul called it the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold meaning literally multicolored. Just wisdom in all kinds of ways. Wisdom about how that happened or about how that didn't happen. Wisdom about the timing of something. Or all the echoes you see now in Genesis and Deuteronomy. Wisdom about the way that this would bring obvious glory to God. Or wisdom about how in reflecting on it later this thing that so upset you was actually for your good. Wisdom in so many ways, so many levels that you and I can only be staggered as we grow in our appreciation of it. It is manifold. Brothers and sisters, I don't know of any place in the Bible that gets closer to giving God a mission statement, or God, rather, giving his mission statement for history, indicating what he's about, answering the question, why? God's reason or intention for doing what he's doing in the church is here stated simply and directly, but don't let that simplicity or directness mask the grandeur of the vision he gives here. This is the reason why God has done what he's done in the church. He says here in verse 11 that this has been his eternal purpose. This is the reason why he's done what he's done in Christ. This seems to be the reason why God has done what he's done in creating the world, to display his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the the principalities and powers, angelic and demonic, the the hosts of heaven and hell. Paul has already referred to the evil spiritual powers you see up in 2.2, the prince of the power of the air, He mentions again over in chapter 6, verses 10, 11, and 12 in language like this passage. He's already mentioned really back in chapter 1 in verse 20 and 21. Even God's spiritual opponents cannot help but marvel at the wisdom he has exhibited in saving his people by sending his Son. But this would include those allied to him as well. The angels, even angels, could be staggered and amazed by what God has done in the church. All creation will be astounded at the wisdom of God. That's why Calvin called this the the theater of God's glory. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians 1, he said, This world is like a theater in which the Lord presents to us a clear manifestation of his glory. Or as Bobink put it, the earth is the stage of God's miraculous acts. Here, the war is fought. Here, the victory of God's kingdom is won. Angels turn their faces to the earth. According to Paul here, this is all perhaps even more for the heavenly beings. Fallen and unfallen, even more for them than it is for us. All of history is a pageant, a parade, a a beautifully choreographed dance which cannot be understood finally by us, at least not finally and not while we're in it, apart from God's revelation to us. You understand what Paul is saying here? He seems to be saying that God's eternal purpose has been to display his wisdom to the heavenly beings by creating the church of Jews and Gentiles through Christ, so making his followers one, as Christ prayed in John seventeen twenty one, making them one, in no small part, God's wisdom is shown to the church being given this unity, which reflects God's own unity. So God's glory is the point. The heavenly beings are the audience. The cross is the means and the church is the display. Therefore, the church is at the center of God's concern with his own name. If you want to argue with me about something at a break, that's the sentence you want to go for. All right? God's church is at the center of God's concern with his own name. You could summarize it like this. The cross was to create the church. The church displays the spectacular wisdom of God. Reconciliation with God becomes visible through reconciliation with man. Our new life in Christ is to bring us into the new society of the church. So hatred and divisions are what the spiritual authorities and rebellion against God had sown and had worked for. But now in the gospel and in the church it births, they see God's eternal purposes for peace and love accomplished. Finally, his purposes prevail. His wisdom is manifested. He is vindicated. Paul's great concern for the church is that the church manifest and display the glory of God, thus vindicating God's character against all the slander of demonic realms, the slander that God is not worth living for. God has entrusted to his church the glory of his own name. name. Now, now this is a God-centered view of reality. I don't know what's motivated you to come to a missions conference. I don't know what's motivated you to get involved with Christianity. Maybe you're thinking the purpose of your life is your comfort, or your immediate happiness, or instant relief of your pain, or wisdom for job and career advancement. But here we have presented an entirely other view of reality that is not centered on us and our desires but it's in fact a display of God's wisdom, of of his glory. God's ultimate purpose is to glorify himself. It's the core of our fallen natural inclination to hate this. And so to work to rob God of his glory. You look at Romans 1. According to Romans 1, we want to have the glory ourselves and distribute it to God's creatures maybe. But through Christ Through this creation of the one new man in his body, God works to glorify himself despite us, despite our rebellion, even to glorify himself by redeeming us out of our rebellion. I think that the more we grow in grace and spiritual maturity, the more we hunger to see God glorified. We rejoice in the gifts that we have not so much because of what they are, but because God has given them to us and he's given them to us to use for his glory. And that's why as we mature spiritually, we can be every bit as happy for the gifts he's given to others. We're happy when the other mission organization grows, when it's being used for God's glory. Our prayers for revival, to convert the nations, we're, were never meant to be prayers for SEND or ABWE or the IMB or Frontiers. They're prayers for Christ, for God to be glorified. The the means he would use are the, the least of our concerns. We want him to be glorified. Christians, when you hear this, you begin to see this in the scripture. And then you're called to trust God. When you look around at a church, though any individual church will have its faults and foibles, I can promise you as a pastor of one, When you look around at a church, you are seeing God's masterpiece. The thing which he has been about as the supreme demonstration of his skill, his wisdom, his character, his glory. And this is his eternal purpose we read here. This is what he has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amazing language, language that is much more full than anything we can fully plumbed. Language that begs for you to spend time meditating on the glory of God, his justice and his mercy, his love and his wrath, his severity and his generosity. Friend, do you keep waiting for that sort of downhill slope time in your Christian life? Do you feel you've had a rough COVID period or a hard time with some grief the Lord has called you to go through? Or some disappointments, or it's been a hard few years. I think God gives us the richness of the revelation of his mind and heart that we have here in order to help us to continue on, even if we never come to those downhill slope times in this life. Paul knew that the Ephesians needed to know this and understand this. Jail could thwart Paul's purposes, human purposes, smaller purposes, but not God's, not ever. We need this kind of confidence if we would continue to follow the Lord today. We need to move on from this great distance brought into our minds by the telescope of this text as we faintly scan the furthest reaches of God's purposes, as we've considered what it was that Paul preached to the Gentiles. To consider now one more observation from the last few verses in our passage. The observation is this, number four, jail can separate them from Paul, but not from God. Jail can separate them from Paul, but not from God. Look at verse 11. This was was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Here we have Paul's point in chapter three. God commissioned Paul to bring people to himself through spreading the news about Jesus Christ. In verse 11, we see that God's eternal purpose is realized in Christ. All of God's marvelous wisdom is centered on the person and work of Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the one all our confidence is in. In verse 12, Paul summarizes that purpose played out in the life of the individual. Through the message that Paul preached, God would bring us to himself through faith in Christ. Now that last phrase, through our faith in him. And by this faith, we are in Christ. And being in him, we have his boldness, we have his trust to have free access to God, to come near to God with confidence. Christ has died for us, and so we believe in him. We are united to him by faith, and so we draw near to God through him. Friend, can you imagine coming to God with such confidence of his goodness towards you? Are you perhaps here at a missions conference because you're unusually driven by guilt, because you have an unusually severe view of God. I remember being struck by John Newton's account of his own life and pilgrimage. A hardened man in the hardest trade there must have ever been, trading in human flesh, on a slaving vessel. And he opened his Bible and in his, God's providence, he drew his eyes to Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And Newton recounts that he was struck by God's goodness. And he was undone. He had never suspected that God was so good. Through Christ we can approach God with confidence. You know what I mean? Brother, sister, I hope you've known that confidence even this morning as you've prayed. This is what's been affected through God's amazing plan in Christ. And so Paul says in verse 13 that they should realize that his, Paul's, absence is because of his preaching the same message that brought them near to God. So his absence is from the same thing that's caused their access to God. Paul was not one of those preachers who was just on the eyes, just on rather, when the eyes of men were on him. But by God's grace, he seemed to have a keen desire to seek the good of these young Christians even when he was absent from them. So we see here that Paul desired to encourage these Gentile Christians. You look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul desired that these Christians not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. They had likely heard he was in prison. They certainly knew it now after he had pointed it out to them up there in verse one. He mentions it again in chapter four in verse one and again in chapter six, verse 20. Toward the end of the book, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. But his saying that his sufferings were for them wasn't meant to discourage them, to guilt them. Rather, it was intended to help them understand that they are a part of the mysterious wisdom of God in bringing the message of redemption to the Gentiles, and so are things which these young Christians should actually glory in as treasures and honors given them by God. He knew it's not natural for them to think of somebody's imprisonment, somebody's threatening restriction of their freedoms that way but Paul was saying, listen, as important as my freedom and rights as a Roman citizen may be, there are things so much more important than our rights as citizens. Friends, rights as citizens are not important enough for you to divide a church over. Stand down. Get back in line with the gospel. Paul is in prison and he's not complaining about his rights being violated. Could his rights have been violated? Yes. Could Paul have had other legal redresses? Possibly. Possibly. Were churches around him not being as helpful as they could be? I don't know, maybe. But, But the chains of Paul and other preachers of the gospel would only be dim echoes of the nails of the cross and the bonds of death, which held the Lord Jesus only temporarily. All this suffering was the price which God would willingly pay. So dear were these people to him. So the Ephesian Christians and others who benefited from Paul's ministry weren't to be worried. Paul's imprisonment as a part of God's plan to give the gospel to the Gentiles was part of God's plan. It didn't mean that the local officials or, or even the Roman emperor were about to defeat God's purposes. That would not be happening. They did not need to be worried about that. I love the fact that the book of Revelation is written when an old man is exiled to a desert island by the mightiest empire on earth. And what does he do? God gives him this revelation of God's supremacy over all powers. Brothers and sisters, as you come to understand the gospel and what God is doing more and more, the threats in the world look so different. Some religions would tell Paul that he just needed to have a little more faith to confess this restriction to be gone. These chains were not real. If he would just strengthen his faith, He wouldn't have to worry about such petty sufferings, teach them to deny their reality. But friends, Bible Christianity isn't like that. The Bible teaches us that suffering, like Paul being chained, is very, very real. But that suffering in this world is temporary and that no such temporary suffering can change God's righteous character or thwart his sovereign purposes. You See that little so in verse 13? Look down at verse 13. See that little so? So, why is it there? Well, it's to point back to God's great plan behind and beneath all the adversities. These great matters that Paul has just been talking about that we've been considering. Paul has shared all this with them so that they would not be finally discouraged by his own suffering. Or, by near implication, by their own suffering should it come to that. God was accomplishing his purposes. No chains could bind him. No bars prevent him. I was also struck, as I meditated on this, with Paul's concern for these Ephesian Christians. There he was in prison for preaching the gospel. He could have been pitting himself or angry at God or writing letters of complaint any of a thousand of other things that may be too much like what you or I might do. But he wasn't. No, Paul was caring for others. He was writing to some other young Christians, desiring their encouragement, even while he himself was undergoing such adversity. And yet this which sounds so strange to the people of the world, this selflessness, this genuine concern for others, begins to sound more normal the longer you know Christians. By God's grace, such a concern for others is a normal part of truly being a Christian. Paul's suffering is for you, as he says up in verse 1, a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, which is your glory. Not that Paul's imprisonment itself is of any value to these Gentile believers, but his willingness to take the gospel to them and to explain and even defend them to Jewish believers and to secular authorities, despite opposition and misrepresentation from his fellow Jews would cost him his freedom. And it is this, Paul's willingness to forego his own comfort and even freedom that is such an ornament to the Ephesian church, such an honor and to other Gentile churches, the prize of their salvation and God's glory by means of it is well worth the price of the imprisonment to the apostle. Paul was reminding them that jail could separate them from Paul, but not separate them from God. You remember the Gordons that I mentioned at the beginning? George and Ellen were stopped in their mission to the island of Aramango after four years of living there and loving the people and translating the Bible, they were murdered. When George's younger brother James heard about it, he expressed his desire to go and continue his brother's work. He knew that even his brother's death had not ended God's plan for the gospel to go to the Aramangans. And in fact, his brother James did follow him there, and did see fruit. But in the strange providence of God, James too was martyred there. News of the martyrdom reached Canada, and they were at first afraid to tell his mother. When the story of her second son's death was told her, she quietly exclaimed, I wish that I had another boy to send that the heathen may receive salvation. What gives a woman that kind of confidence and courage? Only knowing the difference between God and his servants and trusting that God will provide for and protect his servants perfectly to fulfill all of his good purposes for them. Whether that's the Gordons on Aramango. Or Paul under arrest in Rome? Or young Christians in a pagan city in Asia feeling isolated and abandoned? Or you sitting here this morning? Where is your confidence? In times of temptation and fear, your confidence isn't ultimately in friends or family or preachers like me. Your confidence is in God, not in your plans and purposes, but in his. Let's pray together. Lord God, you know how our minds too easily rebel against your truth. Make your truth sweet to us, pour out your Holy Spirit. By his powerful operations, teach us from your word. Instruct us, use us to bring you glory. As people around us and the powers of the heavenly realms see your manifold wisdom through your church.